Hello and welcome to Late Night with Father Kelly. So I recorded this, what's going to come the same thing, last night, but much later at night. But I got to the end of it and thought, you know, I didn't like the way some things came out. I used the same word like 17 times on accident. And you know what? I'm in charge. I can do this. So uh, in case you're seeing this, as, you know, in case you're subscribed and you're getting this again, uh, it is... Technically, the same the same things I'm going over here on my on my little board of all the stuff, but um, hopefully it'll sound better than before. Uh, a little practical note: um, I do post this on Facebook and probably ends up other places too. I don't I don't like I don't like Facebook. I think it's not good for us. I don't want people to have to go through Facebook to get to that. So uh, if you subscribe to either the YouTube channel or to the SoundCloud, uh, you'll get notified somehow. Uh, that there's new stuff posted. So you don't have to go on Facebook to get it. Great. Um, you know, I don't know how that works. I don't want to be one of those like, like and subscribe now, people. Um, but it does have its practical purposes. So um, if you would like to receive updates about these videos or recordings and not have to go on Facebook or other social media to get them, uh, do subscribe. It makes it easier for you. It has been a while since I've done one of these. I think the last one I posted was maybe January 31st. Um, so what I'm going to do is go through a bunch of topics that I had wanted to do in a much more complete kind of way, but I thought it was better to do them more briefly than I, than I maybe originally intended to, but to get them done. Because what would happen otherwise is that I would say, oh, I'm going to do a full length of what I wanted to on these topics, and then I think of more topics, and then I go back to those, and they sort of pile up in the background, and I feel guilty about it, and it becomes a burden, and nothing happens at all. So if I just go ahead and do them, even in a simplified form, uh, I think it'll be a relief to me, and um, still hopefully it'll be good for you, um, and then more stuff can come, and I won't be annoyed at myself. Um, so hopefully it's an enjoyable process. I'll try to make the segues make sense. Uh, though, thinking of last night, it does go on a little bit long on the same topic, um, but hopefully they're different enough um, examples that it does remain interesting. Uh, one thing that I wanted to talk about in between now and last time uh, was the idea of acedia. I, I thought I would get around to it on a previous recording during the snowstorm. We were all stuck inside. I thought that'd be a great topic to talk about, um, a great thing to address. Say, you know, I'm going to do this recording uh, to fight off acedia as an example to other people who might be needing to fight off acedia. Turns out, didn't need to do that at all. Um, so what is acedia before I explain that? It's that, you know when you you think, oh, I'll take a nap. It's my day off or it's a snow day. And then you lay around, maybe you watch something, and then you take a nap again, and then you maybe eat something and you kind of just lounge all day. And your your thought is that you're going to be resting but you get to the end of it and you realize you're actually exhausted still. Um, that's what a CDA feels like. It can also look like, you know, having, oh, I have all day to get stuff done. And suddenly 10 p.m. happens and you've gotten nothing done. And so it takes a conscious effort very often to to get out of that. Say, you know, I'm going to not just mope around today and do real stuff. Now, it's not being a workaholic either. Um, there, it's, there's a right level to it, um, but it is very tempting to just uh, veg out and really feel worse. Well, 
That doesn't mean good relaxation isn't, you know, sometimes it is perfectly appropriate to take a nap all afternoon. Nothing wrong with that in the right context. Uh, but that feeling of acedia is different when uh, we think we're resting, we justify it because we, we claim that we're resting, but really we know it's not actually restful. And it, it is very uh, easy to slip into that on times, you know, quarantine in general, all the stuff we've been experiencing. I bet all of you know what, what acedia is if I've talked about it here, you didn't know the name for it. Um, and so it's important to get out of that because it doesn't actually make us happy. Uh, it makes us really feel quite miserably, even though we think we're resting. And so uh, I wanted to make something to talk about that in the snowstorm time. Turns out I had plenty to do and there was absolutely no risk of acedia because I spent all of those three or four days as you know, answering emails and making phone calls because I guess everybody else thought, hey, I'm going to get stuff done too. So uh, it was not a lounging about stuck inside time. Stuck inside, yes, but um, a lot of things still went on, including so much that it didn't get around doing one of these. Well, some of the topics have to do with like a month ago, but that's just the way it is. But I'll talk about something first that is uh, more recent. We are in Lent, as is known, but Sundays in Lent are not part of Lent. I think that's a classic uh, Catholic both-and. I mean, even the sentence itself is kind of funny. Sundays in Lent, you know, it's Lent before, it's, it's in the midst of Lent, are not part of Lent. But they are, obviously, part of Lent, because they're literally in Lent. So how are they both part of Lent and not part of Lent? Well, again, it's a, it's a, it's a classic Catholic both-and. So if you count from Ash Wednesday to the evening of Holy Thursday, you only get 40 days by excluding Sundays. And so just by the math, Sundays are not part of Lent. They're not what the church expects to be part of Lent. But we wear purple at Mass and don't sing the Gloria. So it is Lenten. You know, every every ma- every Sunday Mass celebrates the resurrection. Um, but we are subdued on Sunday Masses in Lent. So they are part of Lent in a way, but they're also not, um, you know, in a way that makes sense, in a way that um, can be good for you. Our Lenten penances don't apply during Sundays in Lent. Now, suppose you, you know, for your Lenten penance, you're going to quit smoking. And so you've, you're giving up smoking altogether for Lent, and that's your discipline for Lent. A very hard one, certainly, and, and, and worthy of effort. Um, that's the kind of Lenten discipline that you don't go back on on Sundays. Uh, just for, the, for a practical sake, that would be a bad idea. But if you gave up chocolate for Lent, or gave up alcohol for Lent, it would be very appropriate to have some chocolate or a glass of wine on Sundays. Because having that makes us remember the days of Lent even more. If we, take a, if we take a break from our disciplines on one day and rest properly, then when we go back to our disciplines on Monday, it makes us appreciate it all the more. The risk of trying to uh, just power through for 46 straight days is that we're liable to get jaded by it um, or to more easily fail. So as so often happens in her wisdom, uh, the church gives us a system that actually responds well to human nature. The church asks us to do penances six days at a time, but then 
intentionally gives us the seventh day off to rest and sort of come back to normal. And then we'd be on that on the next day number one, really day number two, because Sunday is the first day of the week. Then we can actually do so in a more refreshed and more focused way and probably be more successful. Thinking about this, though, made me think of a sort of an interesting thing um, with our Lenten disciplines compared to days that are not part of Lent, thinking of Sundays specifically. So there's sort of two ideas. You have fasting and feasting. So fasting, think of it more generally as um, a penance, a suffering, a a difficult thing we do. Versus feasting is uh, pleasure in good food, for example, and uh, rejoicing and enjoying good things. What's interesting, what I thought of is that both of these two things can either be a worldly thing or a godly thing in a positive and negative way. Hear me out. So, feasting. In a negative sense, it's worldliness. It is uh, an inappropriate focus, especially you know on a, on a Friday in Lent. To be feasting is a bad thing to do because it draws us away from God towards worldly pleasures and it removes our that our mind and our heart from the discipline from approaching God. However, on a Sunday when we are taking a break from penances, a feast can be a divine thing. Remember that so often in scripture, feasting, or rather the kingdom of heaven is described as a feast. So there's so often the wedding feast, the wedding banquet, the the, the feast, you know, parties in heaven. Remember the prodigal son comes back and they throw a feast at the, at the father's house. So feasting can be a divine thing too. You know, a, a wonderful meal with friends can be a very holy experience, can be a very heavenly type of experience. So feasting can be worldliness, even sin. It can be overindulgence or it can be a heavenly thing. Fasting likewise has that. Fasting you know, sort of in the sense of more general sense of just suffering could be a thing that takes us away from God. It could be, you know, if we if we are suffering and don't do anything good with it, if it's just suffering that, that has no purpose, that can just drag us down and make us miserable um, and doesn't do a spiritual good. Or fasting, i.e. just the general sense of penance, can take us away from worldly things and focus us towards God. So, uh, you know, let's just make the distinction between the days of the week again. On Sunday, no, let me do it the way around. On Lenten days, the fasting brings us closer to God and feasting would take us away from God. But on a Sunday, it flips. Fast, feast, fasting, i.e., you know, doing too much your work or suffering or pain could take us away from God, whereas feasting like a good meal with family on Sunday afternoon could in fact bring us closer to him. So one of those interesting um, things where when we approach it with the eyes of the church, uh, it's kind of a both and. It's, it it's appears in two different ways from two different angles, yet it's all one thing. The most the reason it's like that is because Jesus is like that. He is true God and true man. He is both at the same time, a hundred each. So feasting and fasting are both good and true in their right ways at the same time, just like Jesus is true God and true man at the same time, though he's only one person.
Speaking of that relationship between the earthly and the divine, a while ago now, we had the Feast of St. Blaise. See, I've been saving these things up for a while. We had the Feast of St. Blaise. And we know the Feast of St. Blaise is where we have the, the crossed candles and there's a blessing for health of the throat and, what is it? The intercession of St. Blaise may be delivered from every ailment of the throat and other physical harm, something like that. We bless the throats, but really the whole body as well. And it's a popular day because everyone likes free stuff. You know, even if it's just a free blessing with candles, it's something special. It's a unique thing. Uh, we like that. It kind of stands out. Uh, but one thing that's important to keep in mind on days like that is to ask ourselves, are we attracted by the novelty of it or the real spiritual meaning of it? And, okay, looking at that meaning then, is it the physical healing that's more important or the spiritual healing that's more important? Obviously, I'm going to say the spiritual healing is more important. A way to think about it is that, you know, if your throat is healed on the Feast of St. Blaise by his intercession, but then you use that healed throat to gossip and curse other people, well, that's actually not any good. You, you would have been better off morally if you weren't healed and weren't able to speak. So that shows that, the again, for other obvious reasons too, the spiritual healing is the more important part. You know, if you are spiritually healed in and of your throat, you might say, so that then you are more inclined to speak blessings and be kind to one another. We'll get on to kindness later. But if you're uh, more inclined to speak charitably and words of love and mercy with your now healed voice, that's a lot more important than just being physically healed. Uh, and so, you know, it, like the sacrament of anointing, anointing of the sick, we hope the person is physically healed from anointing of the sick. That's that's part of the prayers. But the more important thing is that they're that they're spiritually healed. You know, it happens modestly often that uh, father goes to anoint somebody and maybe they do die from their ailments, um, but it's always a relief to the family and to be able to share at the homily, well, this sacrament, though it did not physically heal them, it sometimes does, but in this case, maybe it didn't, but it spiritually healed them and prepared them for death in a very important way. And that's a more important thing than physical healing. And so uh, that question for St. Blaise and for lots of things of the church you know, are we in it? Are we doing it for the right reasons? Uh, same thing with Ash Wednesday, honestly. Uh, are we receiving ashes for the right reason? Is it because it's a fun, you know, outward symbol that we're getting? It's kind of a novelty? Or is it for the spiritual reality that we hope that it brings about? Um, sidebar on Ash Wednesday. Uh, I hope we don't go back to crosses on the forehead. Uh, out here in Weatherford, we didn't have such bad weather that we couldn't do Ash Wednesday services at all. But... Uh, having done it with just sprinkling ashes on top of the head, it was such a relief because without crosses on the forehead, you you totally avoid all of that drama about, well, what's it there for? Am I showing off that I have ashes on my forehead today? Is it an act of penance for me or is it pride that people see me? Oh, look how holy I am. With ashes on top of the head, I think it makes all the difference. You know, there, there's no case for that discussion. You, know, you receive ashes and they're much less un, they're much less seen. And you go about your day, you know you received ashes. You know that you are have made a gesture of humility, but you don't have to answer questions about it. You don't get to talk about it. And honestly, I think it fulfills a lot better uh, the, what we have in the gospel that day about going to your inner room. Now, and 
in the right, all it says is that the minister places ashes on the head of the uh, head of the person. It does not specify the cross. It doesn't specify on top of the head. It just says ashes are placed on their head. And the church leaves it open as to what that exactly looks like. So uh, I think it was very refreshing. I didn't know that I hadn't realized it didn't say specifically make a cross on their forehead. And so that was an interesting uh, experience and a kind of a realization that uh, we can do Ash Wednesday without, I mean, I remember every year on Facebook, there's all that drama about, you know, what the cross means and memes about it and whatever on top of the head takes that all out. And I think it was, it was very refreshing that it then had the only option left was that it was really about the penance of, you know, like the first reading from um, when Jonah goes to Nineveh about being in sackcloth and ashes, a sign of penance, really refreshing. Okay. That was a sidebar. It wasn't even in my notes, but I wanted to, to get that in. Um, going back to the idea of substantial, you know, what is, I don't know, maybe it's not a very good segue here. Let me just go into it. So last, well, my notes say last week, this is copy and pasted from when I wrote this like a month ago. A few weeks ago, I was reading an article, something on sports, and I had to take a survey to read the article. You know, instead of having ads, they take a survey from a company, you answer some questions and they, you know, you're getting, they're giving, they're getting information from you and that's how they pay for the article. Okay, fine. But the question, the first few questions were innocuous. I don't remember what they were now. But then the third question in this this little survey was, how can brands help you navigate the pandemic? I thought, well, that's an interesting question. And it had a series of answers, you know, providing information. I don't remember what they all were now. Um, And then I clicked to the next question and I realized it was a survey sponsored by Pfizer, i.e. the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical company. So here's a company whose business model directly profits by them uh, addressing the pandemic. So here they were trying to position themselves like, oh, how can we, the the pharmaceutical company, help you navigate this pandemic, dear consumer? It's like, aha. But they were framing it all in like a totally, you know, altruistic, neutral way. Like, oh, let us help you out of the goodness of our hearts. Like, come on. No. This company and many like them, you know, honestly, all kinds of companies are, you've probably gotten tons of emails, you know, here's how we're helping you with the pandemic. You know, it's like Ford, like really Ford, you know, Chevrolet, you're going to help me deal with the pandemic. I wonder what your solution is. Hmm. Maybe it has like, I should buy a new car to help me get over the pandemic. Let me buy a Jeep so I can go out and have adventures instead of being stuck inside. You know, they are profiting off of our emotional and psychological vulnerabilities. You know, we're stuck inside, we're captive, we're miserable, we're just anxious. And so companies are eager to come in and help us with dealing with the pandemic. No, you do not need a company to help you navigate the pandemic. There are professionals, friends, family, people who know what they're talking about. That's what we need to help navigate the pandemic. Specifically, People who don't make any profit by how we navigate it. You know, Amazon would love to help us whatever way, but their kind of help makes Jeff Bezos more money. That's why they care about helping. You know, they're not really concerned about us and our our personal well-being. So, next few things I want to talk about are 
hitting on that kind of topic of kind of, I want to, I want to point out a couple things that I've noticed where, um, there's help there or uh, things are passed off as really better than they are, than they actually are. It's the same kind of thing that, I mean, I mentioned a lot of companies do this, but I've also been seeing it a lot from uh, smug celebrities who, you know, oh, oh, be nice or, you know, think positive. You know, there'd be a big, you know, banner somewhere, a big sign uh, with, you know, Oprah or something like this, like, think positively or, or friendliness is the answer. Or, you know, it'll have, of course, their smiling picture and some platitude and then the brand name or the product over in the corner. And some of them are getting pretty bold. I don't remember what, I I do not remember what it was. It was some female celebrity musician, maybe. And it, I wish I could remember the exact quote. I was just so stunned by, I really thought it was sarcasm. I really thought it was um, irony of some sort because it was so bold. It literally said like being nice will be our salvation or, you know, friendliness will save us. It was something like that. That was sounded so campy and so um, obviously not true, or so you know, such a canned line. But then, I, as I kind of went, went about my business, I was like, "No, holy crap! They really are pitching that as the real deal. That you know, being nice or you know, put on a smile is really going to get us through this pandemic in a meaningful way." Now, let me be clear. I do think you should be nice. You know, look for uh, optimism and the virtue of hope. Okay, that's a way of thinking positive, I guess. Um, yeah, be friendly to people you meet. That's There's nothing wrong with that. But friendliness is not the answer. It's part of it. But a lot of things, being friendly and nice, are not going to fix. Uh, one thing I want to um, connect this with, and this is a, a very sensitive thing, so I'm going to proceed carefully, and um, very often, not every time, but very often when there is something like a mass shooter or someone who makes a bomb, I think that's far too common and is not to be taken lightly whatsoever, but I think this is important to point out Modestly often in those situations, the people, they, of course, they interview the people that were around that person who did that. And so, so often, not every time, but very often, all everyone has to say is, oh, well, they, they always seem nice in the office. They were so friendly. They were such a positive person at work. I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't know anything was wrong. They just, they just seemed nice all the time. They, they were a great person to work with. If niceness... And positivity and friendliness were really, you know, had saving power to them. If they were enough, then those kinds of things wouldn't happen. Now, I'm not at all saying that those kinds of things are caused by friendly people. Obviously, most friendly people, most nice people, most positive people really are that and are not going to do any of those sorts of terrible things. But I think... It should, it should make the point, I, I bring that those tragic things up to make the point that niceness and friendliness and positivity and you know, those kinds of uh, feel-good outward signs 
are not really capable of creating positive, meaningful, long-lasting change. Further example of that, I've seen a number of people in my office lately who have either you know hit rock bottom or are you know frustrated with with bouncing around from various worldly experiences or or shallow religion and are finally looking for something real and meaningful to give their life to. If you just if you if there's someone like that who is you know this isn't one of them but he's someone who's an alcoholic and uh, just has finally come to the very end of it. And your answer to them is, well, just be nice and that'll make everything okay. Think positive, that'll fix it. You know, well, be friendly and, and that'll, be our, that'll be your salvation. No, that would be insulting to say that to somebody. That would, be, that would be a slap in the face to their trials and difficulties. Now, uh, you know, I know that the sign from whoever that was that I saw in Walmart was not dealing, meaning to, be de- to deal with... Um, deep, you know, personal anguish, but the boldness with which it was stated that really did have this um, smug sensibility that, well, here I am, the the famous celebrity, I'm going to give you my advice, just be nice to people and that will get us through this. No, that's not going to work. But what happens is that people really do live with that mentality. They, you know, I think it's true that a lot of folks that's all that they know. All they have is advice dispensed by people on TV whom are presenting a smiling face, usually promoting a product. And what I want to get around to saying, or what I am saying is that that's not going to do it. But if you pay attention, that kind of thing is everywhere where uh, something shallow and not very meaningful is presented as the thing that will get us through and save us. Another example, a few months ago we had the Super Bowl. I admit I don't even know what teams were in it, but I guarantee that those two teams spent millions of dollars in the weeks leading up to it promoting their brand, trying to rope people into it, of course, to get them, you know, obviously, to watch the game, buy products, you know, buy jerseys and whatever. And they pitch it as, if you are a fan of this team and buy our stuff, you will have a meaningful life. This will be a happy thing. Right, car companies do this all the time too, where they, you know, they show you have show people on TV having great adventures, and oh, if you buy a Jeep, you're going to be happy. If you buy a Subaru, you're going to be happy just like this. You might have good experiences. You know, the one the team who, if you care about Super Bowl team, you're going to have a fun time watching the game, and if your team wins, it's going to be great. But eventually, the game is over, and even if your team won, after a few weeks, the the excitement goes away, and you're back to normal life. Now, for most people, maybe that's, you know, we expect that. I'm an OSU fan. It's been a great season for basketball. But eventually it's going to be over and life will go on, and and I'm okay with that. But there are people out there whose entire existence is wrapped up in their favorite football team or their favorite basketball team or their favorite soccer team or their favorite brand or whatever. And if that goes under or doesn't perform well, or once the season's over, they are in despair, depression, until it comes around again. That's not a way to live. You know, it, there's all kinds of, you know, your favorite celebrity, your favorite politician, who invariably will not be popular anymore, say something stupid, you know, do something horrible where you have to sort of disown them a little bit. And so, 
Um, don't make that your thing. You know, enjoy those things. That's fine. Enjoy sports. That's great. Um, but don't make it the reason for your existence. Like I literally heard a, Mo- a Mountain Dew commercial, and one of the characters in the commercial says that Mountain Dew is the reason for his existence. I mean, I know it was sort of a joking commercial character, but people take that seriously. There, there literally are people out there for whom Mountain Dew and Taco Bell defines their existence. And that's sad because Mountain Dew is just a freaking soda and Taco Bell is a greasy restaurant. That's no way to define your existence. Another one, uh, in a car magazine, I saw an article from somebody who I guess makes YouTube videos about cleaning cars. And they were saying that, well, you know, in these difficult times, it's it's catharsis, cathartic to, for people to see, you know, they, they apparently watch this guy go from a, a dirty car and he cleans it up, you know, really nice. Okay, I could see how that would be sort of enjoyable to watch a time or two. But then he went on to say that basically to frame cleaning your car as a genuine, you know, significant coping mechanism for all the stresses in your life. Like, okay, you know, you had a bad week at work, so you spend Friday afternoon cleaning your car. Okay, that could be a satisfying way. But then do you, like, trash your car so that you can clean it later to be... Sat- no, that's it's unsustainable. It won't see you through. Uh, another thing, big pickups are everywhere. Um, I laughed, not anybody getting hurt or having a hard time necessarily, but, you know, when the first ice storm we had, it was that, that super slick ice everywhere. I saw, on my drive from Guthrie to Weatherford, I saw seven pickups in the median or off on various various places of having slid off the road. Seven pickups, only one car. And then later, when it was super cold, I saw a whole lot more pickups, mostly big diesel pickups, who were stuck on the side of the road. It's like, sorry, man, your big manly pickup that was going to, like, you know, make you feel awesome. Eh, guess it didn't work out for you. A caveat, like so many things. If you need a big-ass pickup for something, you got lots of work to do, lots of off-road places to go, fine. Have a big pickup. If you need it, awesome. But the pickup is not your salvation. It's going to let you down, just like everything, every other material thing will. It's nice. If you need it, it's great. It can be fun to have. You know, I enjoy my Subaru, but I know it's just a car. You know, My fancy off-road tires that I have, they're fun to, you know, I can go more places than maybe other people could, um, but they're just freaking tires. I can get stuck. I have gotten stuck. Had to humble myself and get pulled out. It's not going to be your salvation. So don't put, and I know this, this might sound silly, but people really do, you know, read the bumper stickers. Their truck is what defines their existence or the stickers on the back of their truck is what defines their existence. That ain't good because the truck's going to break and then what are you going to do? Another thing. I'm almost done, I promise. And then we'll get to the homily for this weekend. I've been talking about things that are cheap substitutes, we might call them. Uh, Things that present themselves as what we really need, the thing that will really make us happy, but aren't. Uh, I've had occasion lately to buy lots of, uh, not lots of, but a modest amount of household stuff, you know, lamps and microwaves, that sort of stuff. And you go to Walmart, which is often sometimes the only store that has sort of the range of things you need. 
And anymore, all they have is, especially things like lamps, is really one price point, and it's pretty low, which that's kind of the point of Walmart. But I'm always conflicted because an $8 lamp, yeah, it's going to work as a lamp, but only once. Like, you assemble the lamp, and then don't touch it. Yeah, I remember being in college, and the lamp I bought, it could survive. You know, you'd you'd unpack your room and bring it home every summer, so that gives you dorm room for other stuff. And after about the second or third repacking or reassembly, the lamp didn't go back together so much anymore. These lamps now, way cheaper than that. You know, it was that was 15 years ago, and this lamp is a fourth the price of what a lamp was back then, and about a fourth the quality. It can be assembled once, but then not again. But I was on the fence about buying this cheap stuff and other things like it, because sometimes you just need a lamp and if that's all if you just need a simple lamp to stand in the corner and never be touched again an eight dollar lamp is fine but if you need to do more than just that um don't buy that eight dollar lamp it's not it's not going to see you through the segue here is the eight dollar lamp is like being nice or thinking positive or promoting friendliness it might be just thing you need for a short term you know, if you're having just a bad day and someone's friendly to you, okay, that's that might help make your day. That's a fine thing. Nothing wrong with that. But just like the $8 lamp is not the long-term solution, you know, buying the absolute cheapest car you can is probably not a good idea. It'll work for a little bit, but it's going to let you down. Being, you know, just being nice and having friendliness might be okay here and there, you know, as a little moment, sure. Being if someone's friendly to you, a random stranger or you know a friend you haven't seen since you, hey, how's it going? Or you know, happy birthday kind of text. Fine, nothing wrong with that. As long as we know that it's not what the real thing is. It's not the substantial thing that will really see us through. So, what I'm getting at in all of this, if you haven't been bored to death already, is the importance of. Well, what I've been getting at is pointing out all of the things that I've noticed, and there's, of course, a whole lot more, we're surrounded by emotionally cheap junk that tries to pass itself off for more significant than it really is. And if we want to actually be happy, we need to notice that and not not give it what it wants, not, not let Pfizer or Jeep or whomever the heck, or the, you know, some, the Denver Broncos be more than they ought to be. Let them be a football team, but not your counselor. You know, let Pfizer be the company who makes a vaccine that helps, but not the one who guides you through the pandemic. Right? I think you know what I mean. That it's it's important for us to gauge how much trust and how much authority we give to the things in our life and um, only to not give authority to things, ideas, people who don't actually have the answers we need, who don't actually have the um, legitimate com- the legitimate comfort and, um, well, they don't have what we need. They're just trying to um, give us a quick thing, a short thing, a brief thing, a shallow thing uh, to make some money off of us, um, give us a quick feel-good, but not a real substantial thing. Instead, look for the substantial things. 
to the homily from this weekend, third Sunday of Lent. Has to do with this. You'll see where we get it. Not exactly the same, um, but it does get to the same point in the end. What do people know about Catholics? What do people know about us? And I'm asking that question not as not as a way to like, oh, aren't we great? People think really good things about us. But I think it's a good self-evaluation tool. If we ask, what do people think? It helps us see how we're doing. It doesn't give the whole picture necessarily, but um, the way people perceive us at least says something about how good of a job we are doing being who we ought to be. So what do people generally know about Catholics? They know that we eat fish on Fridays in Lent. They know that we, they know that Pope Francis is our guy, but that some of us like him and some of us don't. They know that the Mass is different from, for example, a Baptist service, but they couldn't really tell you maybe how it's that different and uh, why it is we don't have open, open communion. They know we have something with rosaries and candles and Mary and our cross has Jesus on it, but they don't really know what's up with that. Those things are generally true, but they're not even close to the full picture. As it is, honestly, Catholics are seen as kind of a, a quirky subset of Christians with some strange habits and customs, but whose teachings don't really carry much weight. Those Catholics, they say, they make a lot of noise about certain political things and they, they seem to have archaic moralities, but, you know, ignore them. They don't really, you know, they don't have to take us very seriously. But what if, what if people knew that we didn't eat meat on Fridays as a sacrifice for the salvation of souls? What if they knew that Pope Francis is indeed our guy, but that that's important because as a successor of the apostles, as a a successor to St. Peter, he is the, sort of the papacy is the focus of the church being the church founded by Jesus Christ himself, continued throughout the centuries. What if they knew that the mass is different because we literally receive in our bodies the spiritual nourishment of the Eucharist? That if we exercise it, gives us spiritual strength far beyond the ordinary. What if they knew that our rosaries and candles and Jesus on the cross and Mary are part of a beautiful prayer life that brings the depth of the faith to our senses in a meaningful and tangible way? If they knew all of that, then when we talk about the grave moral evil of abortion, or when we call out legislation for the disordered way which it redefines the human person, then they would listen. If they knew all of that, then when we oppose the death penalty, they might take what we say seriously. If they knew all of those things, then when we have processions with the Eucharist or the statues of saints, they might get down on their knees and show respect to the presence of God and his grace which created the universe. But as it is, Few understand what being Catholic is really about, and while we think it's important, few outside the church care, and honestly many inside the church are unconcerned as well. This is because, I think, we need to do, we need to do a better job at getting our own house in order. In the first reading, Moses recalls the events of the Exodus and then reminds the people of the Ten Commandments. He tells them this to make the connection that just as they were freed from literal slavery to the Egyptians, 
following God's commandments frees them and us from slavery to sin. God wants us to be free from to be free as the Egypt, as the Hebrews were freed from the Egyptians. He set them apart as the, as a special people that live by a special way of life. He wants us still to be his special people living a separate special way of life. Sadly though, we as Catholics and Christians do not behave in a way set apart as people special to the Lord. As far as I can tell, as far as can be seen, Catholics have their idols like everybody else. They inordinately worship TV shows or celebrities as much as anybody else. As far as I can tell, Catholics skip church and work instead on Sundays as much as anybody else. We use profanity and take the Lord's name in vain as much as anybody else. We disrespect our elders by dumping them in nursing homes and forgetting about them as much as anybody else. As far as anyone notices, Catholics are covetous of material goods as much as anybody else is, and commit sexual sins as much as anybody else. And many more things can be said. In so many, wa- in so many ways, though our faith tells us to do otherwise, we are in great need of cleansing our, the temples of our lives and activities to truly be a people set apart by the Lord. As it is right now, our moral authority is in a low state because we do not live as special people set apart by God as our faith directs us to. And clergy have failed in this as much as anybody else. There are perhaps many ways to explain this, to explain how we got here, but at least for these purposes it doesn't matter. All that matters is that we correct it. The good news is that it is not too late to do this. It is never too late. God is justice, but he is also love and mercy. The sins of a father will affect his family, as Moses says, for three or four generations. But also, as Moses said, the Lord is merciful for a thousand generations. Even though it is our sins that put Christ on the cross, as St. Paul says, we preach him crucified, knowing that, is only, that it is only through his cross that we are saved. Even though we have so often thought that we are clever and can talk our way out of believing that we are sinners, we think it makes us wise, but it makes us fools. God is infinitely wiser. Our house is out of order, and it shows. We are not heated by the world. Not that people ought to be impressed by us, so we can be proud of ourselves. No, rather, it is important that they come to understand and be saved, because this is the truth of the gospel that we are presenting. But even more importantly, we ourselves are missing out on the many great graces, mercies, and happiness that God wishes to pour out upon us abundantly. If we work on receiving God's grace first, then it will overflow from us to others. Thinking of the gospel today, it was the cleansing of the temple. I know we are not literally conducting business, worldly business in the back of church, at least not in my church. As far as I can tell, none of you here are primarily coming to talk cattle prices you know, before you, come in, before you go down to your pews. But the gospel still applies to us. The doves and tables and money changers are the sins and worldliness that we harbor in our hearts instead of purifying ourselves as a people set apart. This time of Lent is is a prime time to return to the Lord and to get our house in order, 
to have a relationship with God, and to offer charity as we ought. If we want to do more than just complain about the bad things going on in the world, we need to start by getting our own house in order. Once the grace and right living of God is happening here, in our own parishes, communities, and families, then, and only then, will the world also begin to turn toward the good things of God. Now we can spend all day saying, well, the this and this happened out there, and how dare they, and that's the wrong, and blah, blah, blah. Most of the time, Christians are dismissed when we do that, because it's easy to see that we don't even follow by our own expectations. You know, we point out, you know, especially, well, in general, we point out, well, this moral failing, and they said that, and, you know, they're permissive of this, but then it's pretty easy for the the world to point back and say, yeah, but you Christians... You do this like everybody else. You do this like everybody else. So why should we heed when you critique us for this? Because you kind of do the same thing, right? So if we want to, and if you know, really it is appropriate for us, as God has called us to lead all peoples to you know goodness, truth, and beauty. But if we're going to do that, we have to set the example first. We have to, otherwise we're a hypocrite about it. And so... It's important for us to cleanse our own temple first to make sure we are right with the Lord. And then, honestly, what will happen is it'll sort of take care of itself at that point. If our own house is in order, then we don't have to rabble-rouse about what should be done and what, you know, drag people in. If our own house is properly in order, if we're not, uh, to go to the topics before the homily, if we are not substituting cheap things where solid things should be, then we won't really have that problem. If we have the right substantial thing, you know, holiness, truth, and virtue, you know, real meaningful relationships and ideologies where they ought to be, then everything else will take care of itself. People will come because they will see what is what is the truth. They will see that we have a substantial thing happening. We have the truth happening. Truth is always attractive. We don't have to make it special or flashy or whatever. If we do it right in our own in our own houses, in our own homes, families, communities, parishes, then the grace of God that comes from that will overflow from us to everywhere else. And the mission of the gospel will, in a sense, take care of itself and uh, the world will be built up in a better way. So thank you for listening to that. Uh, it turns out I went almost 12 minutes longer than last night when I recorded it, so hopefully that's a good thing. Um, I recorded this one, well, last night and then this one as to do it better. Because of motivation from people who asked me about it, um, the reality is that there's a million things going on with um, all the ministries that I'm involved in. And so it's very easy for stuff like this to, to uh, slip aside. I do enjoy doing it a lot. And it's you know, it's good for me to um, to have to do this. It helps me get my thoughts in order. And I, I feel, even though it's a work to do it, I feel relieved afterwards. So um, I appreciate those who are like, hey, Father... It's been a while since the last one. How about another one? Um, I'd love to do it way more often than I do. Uh, so please do not hesitate to kind of poke me on this. Um, it's good for me. You know, people come to my office all the time and, you know, we're classes, baptism prep, whatever. Um, and I say, if I don't get back to you in a week, please call me again. I won't be mad because the reality is there's so much going on. It's so easy to forget. So, if you like this, um, you know, like I said at the beginning, do subscribe. That way you can get it, get to it without having to go through other social media. Uh, but also if I um, 
fail to do this again anytime soon, uh, please give me a little poke and say, hey, Father, it's about time again. Get on with it. And uh, I won't be mad. I'll appreciate that because I want to do it too. Uh, but it just, that's the reality. So God bless you all. Uh, pray for me. Uh, call in the intercession of the saints. They're pretty awesome. See you later. Bye.